All right. Well, as I mentioned, we are talking about the doctrine of worship, and we are in part 21 of a series on biblical and reformed worship. And I've finally decided last week is going to be it. We are going to conclude next week. We've been 21 weeks now, so it's taken us all the way through summer. But next week is it, and next week we're going to talk about style. So, we've been talking about music in the context of corporate worship, and what we're going to talk about today is the purpose of it. Why do we sing in, in worship? And we're going to start touching on style, though that's going to be something more specifically for next week. We're going to talk about traditional versus controversy, and that uh, contemporary controversy, which is you know kind of the big topic of the worship wars in our day and age. What is traditional? What is contemporary music? Where's the line? Uh, what, are the, what do the scriptures say regarding these issues? And we're going to talk next week, too, about stuff like dancing and the raising of hands and swaying and clapping and all that stuff. So that's kind of where we're at and where we're going. Um, but to review a little bit, particularly of what we talked about last week, I argued last week that our order of worship should be guided by the gospel pattern. The gospel pattern is something that we see in Scripture. And I talk about the gospel pattern, I mean like the, the pilgrimage of the Christian life. It begins with revelation of who God is. And then there's an acknowledgement of, or a realization, oh, I'm a sinner, which leads us to confession, which leads us to the grace of the gospel, which then, after the gospel comes to us, we are then instructed in the Lord. And um, so this, our liturgy is patterned after this kind of uh, pilgrimage of the Christian life. And I argued last week, I'm not going to recap it all, but I argued that's kind of what we see in Scripture loosely. I used Isaiah 6 as the chief text, right? Isaiah enters the throne room of God. He realizes who God is. He realizes who he is. Oh my goodness, I've got unclean lips. And God comes and cleanses him. The angel comes and cleanses him with a burning coal. And from there, he's forgiven, and then he's instructed, and he's sent out. And our worship service is to model that in some respect. Also, I argue that our, our order of worship in corporate worship is to communicate the gospel as well. Every aspect of the gospel in the Christian life. So that, you know, our Christian life isn't all about joy. Neither is it all about instruction, preaching. It isn't all about confession. You know, there's to be a balance. And when we become imbalanced uh, in our understanding of the gospel, uh, we become imbalanced in our worship, or I should say, probably that's maybe vice versa. We have churches that are all about joy. It's all about joy. We have churches that are all about teaching. No joy. It's like a funeral. Right? And so our goal should be to give equal weight to everything in the Christian life joy, confession, instruction, uh, lament, things of that nature. And this is to provide balance in our worship and in our Christian life. And so I argued worship music, as with every other element in, in, in worship, should reflect an understanding of the special presence of God. 
It's corporate worship. This is something we talked about weeks ago. God is dwelling with His people in a special, unique way. And our worship is to reflect an understanding of that. And of course, it's to coincide with the, with the gospel pattern. Um, and it should be chosen, worship music, should be chosen and sung with intentionality. Particular purpose. This is a song of confession. This is a song of praise. This is a song of preparation. This is intentionality, singing with intentionality. It's not just one endless worship chorus, you know. So, neither blind adherence to high liturgy or low liturgy, traditional or contemporary, is what I'm arguing is healthy. It's not what I'm trying to argue for here. And I'm arguing as well that neither is splitting services, which is essentially splitting churches, through having a traditional service at at 8 a.m. and then a contemporary at 9.30. I don't think that's the answer either. Why? Well, we're going, to begin, we're going to answer this more. We talked about it last week, but we're going to be talking about it more today as well. And so that leads us to today. We're going to talk about the purpose and definition of worship music. And I want to use Scripture as our guide here. I want to see uh, us to consider how and if Scripture guides us in regards to the lyrics, but also in regards to the style. So that's where we're going. Any questions before we begin? <laughs> it's ten minutes in. I'm saying we're just beginning. All right, so I want to ask you, what is the purpose of worship music? Besides what we've already considered. What's the purpose of it? Can this be defined? Can worship music even be defined? Now, obviously... I, most of you are going to say, oh, worship music, it's, it's praising God. Okay, I'm, That's a broad definition, yes, but what specifically is the purpose? Why do we sing? Why do we sing? That's, that's always a safe, safe answer. Good job, Mark. Yes. We are commanded to, and we see it in Scripture as well, right? Yeah. But what purpose does that serve? Why does God command us? Sophie? To For the edification, so for the strengthening of our faith, the building up of our faith. Gracie? It's, a, it's a, a way in which we ascribe worth to God. Yes, exactly. We do this with our lips, and we do it together. Spencer? Brings us together in unity. Brings us together in unity. I like that. That's good. I didn't think of that one. You're right. It's corporate. Jack? It's kind of a universally understood way of um, communicating a message. So you may not understand the lyrics, but the tone can communicate or convey, like, whether it's you know, a praise or a good stuff. Yep, absolutely. Universal way of bringing us together and communicating a truth, right? I am. Um, I'm on a Civil War kick right now. I'm doing a lot of reading about the Civil War. I love the Civil War. Um, love, love reading about it and uh, the characters. But I mean, it just 
Uh, it struck me how the place of battle songs in the war. They're very prominent. Um, the band gets going. That's probably my children. <laughs> the band gets going, and um, that inspires this patriotic zeal for men to throw themselves into an iron sheet of death um, in charging the hill. And the music plays an important role in that. And it's, uh, it's amazing. It brings them together. And it motivates them, gives them zeal to come together for a particular cause, even if it costs them their life or their limbs. So, I like all those answers. And it's good, because now I'm going to go through some bad answers. All right? Is the purpose of worship music to provide the church with an emotional experience or outlet? Now, I'm going to argue in some sense this is true. In some sense. But I'm going to say this is not the main purpose. It's not to work us up emotionally, get us ready for the sermon. Is it to, is the purpose of worship music to help connect people to God, whatever that means? But you hear this a lot. Music is to help us feel that connection with God, which is why it's so heavily, often in our days, uh, why emotions are so um, heavily emphasized. A type of music that stirs the emotions because the goal is to make people feel connected to God. It is the purpose of worship music to get everyone in the church involved in worship. It's not just a preacher standing up, one guy running the show, it often goes. But it's everybody, so we've got to have a music, a style that produces the greatest congregational participation. <coughs> that is, that's huge. That's, a lot of people argue this. Whatever produces the greatest congregational participation, which means you've got to have music that's styled after the top 40 list. Because that's what people like. They listen to that while they work, while they drive down the road. And so it's something they can connect to. And so... And I'm not arguing that, that styling music after the top 40 is wrong. I'm just saying that is this our main motivation to get as many people as, to participate as possible? Well, yes, our goal is to get everybody to participate without a doubt. But obviously I'm arguing that choosing a style that produces that, it's a pragmatic argument, that's probably not the main purpose for worship music. Is it to tap into what's popular in the cultural demographic of the church? Is that the purpose of our music? We look out at what we're like, what the culture around the church in this community is like, and we're trying to tap into that to give people something to connect with. Well, that's a purpose for, I mean, you read a lot. You, you read church planning books, which you know I've been reading a lot these last couple of years. It's exactly, this is one of the biggest points. You've got to find the type of music that's popular in your community. And you've got to tap into that if you want people to come to your church. This is kind of a byproduct of, is the purpose of music to bring people into the church? And I will say that, I mean, you read nine out of every ten books on church planning out there argue that music is the key to church growth. In fact, I, I remember our very first Sunday here, one year ago. 
a guy came up to me afterward. He was a visitor. He hasn't been back since, but uh, <laughs> he came up to me afterward and he said, um, uh, you're kind of near a college and everything. He said, I'm telling you, though, you will never attract young people with this style of music. And he was saying that, like, empathetic. Like, hey, buddy, psst, let me give you a secret. It's a lost cause. <laughs> and if you read church playing material, that's what they argue. The music is the key to building a church. I'm going to argue, obviously, that that's not the purpose of music. So, it's not the purpose of music, worship music. Uh, but the, the, the purpose of worship music should not be simply to entertain, to get as many people involved as possible, to connect us with God, to the exclusion of those around us. I'm saying that's a corporate idea here. And it's not uh, to build the church. First and foremost, worship music should not be chiefly about us. Right? I mean, that's kind of obvious. Right? So much of music today, Christian music, talks about our desires, our faith, our experience, our preferences, our emotions. Have you noticed this? It's just so much about our love for Him. What we have experienced. Lord, you took me through the deepest valleys. And, you know, it's, it's so much focused about us. And not to say that there isn't a place for that. We see that in the Psalms. But is that the emphasis? Is that the focus? I'm going to say, it's not chiefly about us. But worship music should serve the purpose of what pleases God. We're singing to Him. We're ascribing worth to Him. Not to us, but to Him. And so our music should be chosen intentionally by considering and looking at the Scriptures and determining what is it that pleases God. Corporate worship... Uh, is also about God visiting and blessing His people. Again, this goes back to what we've already talked about in 21 weeks. But a distinctive of Reformed worship, of Reformed theology, is that in the corporate worship service, God's the main actor. He is the one who's gathered us as the Sovereign Lord calling us out of the world. He is the one who has given us things like the Lord's Supper, and baptism, and preaching, and prayer. These elements that He has chosen for us to do, because this is how He delights in strengthening His people, and pouring out His grace. So He's the main actor. Our singing is not just us singing God to God, but our singing is even a way, Sophie mentioned it earlier, uh, talking about what, um, uh, I don't know the exact references in Ephesians and Colossians, where Paul tells them to sing to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody with grace in their hearts. And this is a way in which, Paul says, the word of Christ is dwelling in you. Our singing is a way in which God visits His people and blesses them. 
So this changes our focus when we talk about the purpose of worship music. Even our neighbor takes precedence in the area of music, singing and instructing one another. It's not just about me. It's about my neighbor too. And it's about God working through the singing to strengthen our faith. Again, most of, most of our culture has it backwards. It's about our faith, our experience, our needs. It's heavily sentimental and emotional rather than biblical and logical, working through our minds. It's about our desire to connect with God and experience Him. It's about a style that's most attractive to outsiders, often heavily geared towards entertaining So let us remember that God is the object of worship. Let us remember that He is working through that to strengthen our faith. And this is what we're going to consider more in more detail. Any thoughts or questions? Disagreements? You're too quiet. I know there's some silent disagreement, some silent judging going on. (laughs) All right, the purpose is to please our God, to teach one another, to build one up another in the faith. And yes, I'm going to add, one of the purposes of worship music is to assist our hearts to emotionally engage the truths being sung so that we conform to those truths. It is an emotional outlet. I don't want to deny that. It is a deeply emotional experience. It should be. Um, I can't remember if I put this. Yeah, it, it's to stir our hearts. Like, you know, on the battlefield, to stir up patriotism, to go and charge that field. It's to stir our hearts with love and adoration. And it's to work, massage these truths into our hearts that are by nature so slow to believe. I've said this many, many times when people ask me, all right, why do you have a corporate confession of sin in our church? Why do you have a corporate confession of faith once a month after the Lord's Supper? Why do you do those things? And my response is, and they say, well, it's so easy to just walk through the motions. Do you really believe what you're saying? You're just reading what's on the paper. It's kind of formal. It's kind of cold. It's not spontaneous. It's not from the heart. It's not authentic. It's not transparent. And my response to that is, part of the reason we do that is not because we perfectly believe, even in that moment, what we're reading. But it's because we want to believe those things. It's the same with singing. We may not feel like singing. We may not believe in that moment what we are singing because our faith is weak and we keep thinking about the sin that we just committed this past week and how we'd really rather be sleeping in on Sunday and and how you know this isn't our favorite song and it's certainly not our favorite style of song and you all of these things. But we sing in the hopes that through our singing, 
God will soften our hearts. And the things that we want to believe, we sing. Trusting by faith that even when it doesn't feel like it, God is working and massaging those truths into our hearts so that they become second nature. That's what I mean when I say to assist our hearts to emotionally engage. Not to have an emotional experience, but to stir our hearts to grasp these truths. Because we want so badly to believe them and obey them and honor our God. So when it comes to evaluating worship music, what type of music, what style, and what lyric, lyrics as well, what type of music is fit and proper for uh, corporate worship? A couple of things that we must evaluate. I think we must ask the question, does our music announce loud and clear who we are worshiping? To make it obvious. I think it was Michael Horton who said, um, oh, why did I say that? <laughs> Something to the effect of um, you can walk into a congregation and know who they are worshiping by determining who the service is aiming to please. And his point is, if you're crafting your worship service to please outsiders and to attract people to the church, you're really worshiping them and not God. Our music should announce loud and clear so that there's no question who it is we're worshiping. Not ourselves, not our culture, not our unbelieving friend who we hope does come in and hears the gospel, not our experience but we are worshiping God. We should, our worship sh- music should be clear about that. God ourselves, our culture. Secondly, when evaluating worship, we must ask, does our music bear witness to the fact that God is present among us? And that He can't be taken casually. That He's the one that's gathered us, as I spoke of earlier, not to entertain us, but to judge the reading of the law, to justify the reading of the gospel, to instruct the preaching of the word, to equip the pouring out of His Spirit and to strengthen us through the uh, Lord's Supper, and to bless with the benediction, go out from here with my blessing that you are forgiven and I am with you even to the end of the age. This is why God has gathered us. Because He's the actor doing these things to His people for their good and for His glory. And so, our music should bear witness to the fact that God is present. Now, obviously, I'm not going to... This is next week's topic. But this question affects both not only what songs we sing regarding their content, but also the style. That's what I'm, partly what I'm going to argue. I've used the analogy a million times. I'm really going to hit on it a lot next week. But can the deep truths of a holy God and His wrath against sin and the seriousness of the gospel be communicated in an advertising jingle or a nursery rhyme? 
I'm going to argue that, um, in some sense, the medium is the message. That style cannot be separated from what's being communicated. Now, I know that that's broad. That opens up a can of worms. It's subjective, you're going to say. Well, bring it next week, okay? (laughs) But the big point is, regardless of where we draw that line, we ought to at least self-consciously, and so that we have a clear conscience, choose worship music recognizing that God is among us. Mark? What about John Wesley? What about John Wesley? Um, Wait, she was his brother. I don't remember, but he's the one... Charles Wesley? Charles Wesley, the one who took popular drinking songs and wrote him and wrote... Yeah, that... That's a myth. That's a myth. Did he take songs uh, from time to time, songs with um, like folk tunes that were very familiar? Yes. Did he take bar songs and immoral, worldly songs and uh, styles and put them to Christian music? No. It's a myth. Luther actually is the one that's attributed to that, but it, it's a myth. Spencer? Green sleeves to what child is this? Say that again? Green sleeves to what child is this? Uh, I'm not following you there. What's Green Sleeves? Uh, green Sleeves is a um, old like, Irish bar song about a prostitute. Okay. Yeah, and they remapped the lyrics to uh, Okay, wow. Well, I, I would say that at least my initial dipping into that subject uh, reveals that that's more of a myth than reality. But, I mean, in some sense, like we sang uh, last week, we sang um, All Glory Be to Christ. And that tune is a popular... Uh, uh, New Year's tune. Um, what's the name of that tune? Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Everybody responds. <laughs> if nothing... Uh, 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 uh. So, anyway, but... Um, we're, we're talking about that. We will, we will definitely talk about that. Uh, again, though, I, I think that... It's not just the lyrics that are connected to the tune. It's the actual tune itself. What type of emotions does the tune, is the tune designed to stir? Okay? I, John? And of course, making the music style traditional and using piano doesn't make it godly. <coughs> exactly. I've seen many worldly, worldly worship services with the most traditional organ and piano and orchestra that you've ever seen. It's not just delegated to what's hip and rocky. All right, so when evaluating, uh, continue on, when evaluating worship music, we must also ask, does our music coincide with the fact, is it consistent with the fact that we are a community and not a bunch of isolated individuals? That is, we should choose music that's fit for corporate participation. that we can all sing, that we can all participate in. Music that can be sung by all. It's not us, it's not the band singing and we're just kind of tagging along. Uh, that's more entertainment than anything else. It's not uh, you know, music that is really designed to be sung as a solo and that we're trying to force it congregationally and nobody can really keep up. It's music that's fit for everyone's involvement. Continuing on. When evaluating worship music, we must also ask, is our music filled with deep, rich theological and biblical content? It should be a given, hopefully, to you guys. 
So much of worship music nowadays is so superficial. It's just, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide so to gather in the masses, but it doesn't really communicate anything that's, can, that's deep, but also it doesn't really communicate, uh, so much of it doesn't communicate um, things that are uniquely Christian. You know, there's trite spiritual platitudes, like God is, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend, God is my girlfriend kind of thing. Like songs that if you took them out of a church context could really be sung referring to anybody and anything. You are my all in all, right? I mean, well, my boyfriend is my all in all. Not content that can easily cross over to other faiths or forms of spirituality and inspiration. Kumbaya, classic example, right? All right. So, a side note here before we conclude. We've got about ten minutes. What does a Christian song look like? And here I'm looking for like a very basic, like, what does a Christian song look like? Well, if you say what what does a Christian song look like, I guess a Christian song would mean what it should look like, but that kind of presupposes you're right. What should a Christian song look like? This is okay, some just think like reformed tradition here, all right? What pattern or model um what? I'll just give you the answer. <laughs> it was a bad way of framing the question. A Christian song looks like a psalm. That's what Christian music is. It is to look like a psalm. Because the psalm is an inspired hymn book. For both the Old and the New Testament. It is, God hasn't just left us to ourselves to sing what we want. He's saying, here is a hymnal in the middle of your Bible. And they sang them in the Old Testament worship, and they sang them in the New Testament as well. And Paul, to the church in Colossians and the church in Ephesus, commands them to sing psalms. It's not just Old Covenant stuff. No. I didn't plan to go there, actually. But. And to clarify, the psalms can't just be applied to any style whatsoever, so it's not like you can perform Psalm 42 as done by my chemical romance. That's, <laughs> That's next week, but yes. I, I, I'm going to get into that, absolutely. Kyle? What about imprecatory songs? Yes. The psalms about dashing babies' heads against rocks and stuff. <laughs> the horse and the rider thrown in. Um, yeah, absolutely we should there's justification for us singing them I think it's important obviously to um, instruct our people carefully on how to apply the imprecatory psalms in our day and age they don't apply in the same way as they did back then in a sense the imprecatory songs extol God for his justice and then anticipate the day of final judgment when we will actually participate in the judging of the wicked. 
something we can't really identify with now because we have so much wickedness clinging to us. But it's singing in anticipation and, and um, extolling God for His justice and how He does that. But I think it would be important, obviously, to instruct people so that they know what they're singing and why, so they're not singing it and applying it to the Democrats, right? So... <laughs> You laugh. You laugh. It's true. My argument here is that our music, our worship songs and hymnody, which I do not believe are to be limited to the Psalms, but I do believe that it should be patterned and modeled after the Psalms. That they ought to reflect how the songs sing. Nathan? Uh, they're supposed to be patterned because that's the hymnal that the Lord has given us. So I don't think that when Paul says sing songs, psalms, he's meaning psalms only to the exclusion of everything else. There are, obviously, that's a big position in the Reformed tradition. There are a lot of Reformed churches. They only sing psalms. That's it. We have a Psalter up there. We sing psalms as well, but we sing hymns too. Uh, I don't believe in exclusive psalmody. But because they are the hymnal of the church... I believe that's God's divine instruction to us to teach us how to sing. That's what I'm arguing. So what, what do you mean by model? Okay, that's a great question. All right. Um, let me answer that for you, Mark. They're to be modeled after the Psalms. In the Psalms, of course, they tell us about man. They tell us about God, sin, salvation, providence, suffering, the Christian life. The Psalms are very experiential they touch our hearts. They touch our desires. There's in, involves infection, affections, emotions. It's you know the Psalms are so comforting and so inspiring and so instructive to us, um, and, and and they're not limited to just all joy or all instruction. But there's lament. There's confession. There's rejoicing. There's longing. There's anticipation. There's everything. Every emotion that you can think of. So, again, this is an emotional book, and it gives us freedom to express our emotions, but in the right way. And so, the model that I'm arguing is that Scripture and the Psalms, if, and we can really break this down, but I'm going to give broad headings here. I believe that music, particularly in the Psalms, fulfills three roles in worship. And that is prayer, praise, and proclamation. Praise, prayer, proclamation. So there are psalms of praise, and there are psalms that are prayers, and there are psalms of proclamation, and that's really the broadest heading, which I think gives us a model for what purpose our music should serve. Praise, of course, is lauding God, His nature, His works, His deeds, right? This is praising Him. You know, exclaiming with our lips, with our voices, how great He is. Right? And just a side note here, you'll oftentimes, oh, this is our praise time. This is our praise band. This is, these, these are our praise songs. But and while, while saying this is obviously legitimate, that not all of singing is praise. Because there's also... Prayer as well. 
There are songs that are prayers. Created me a clean heart, O God. It's a prayer. It's a petition. And often not, and we sing songs of praise, but we also sing songs where we're asking God to do something. In, in some sense, all of communication to God is prayer. I think that all of our music in the broadest heading can be labeled under prayer, which is why we began to sing the Amen after the hymns, just to remind us of that. This is a prayer offered to God. Entail, entails petitioning God, calling on Him to act. And this demands a humble and contrite heart. Think about some of the worship experiences that you've seen and think about whether they are consistent with an attitude or a heart of prayer. That's what I would say that some styles and applause after the song, are really, it's inappropriate if it's a prayer. It's inappropriate. If I finish the pastoral prayer and you guys start clapping... This, this is going to be an issue. <laughs> That's bad. Either on my part or on yours, <laughs> or on both. We shouldn't be applauding after a song because it's a prayer. All right, last thing here. We've got about five minutes. Proclamation. To educate, to teach, to make our faith stronger, to work it into our hearts. Not just us, but the entire congregation. So that's what I'm arguing is the model that Scripture gives us. That worship music essentially falls into one of those three categories. It's either praising God in some sense, or it's a prayer, even like a prayer of confession or a prayer of lament. Or it's instruction, which is chiefly meant to recount doctrine and so as to instruct and to work it into our hearts. And so my point is, when evaluating music, at the very least, we should ask, is our music true? Right? It's a true, true teaching. Does it effectively communicate truth? It's not obscure or trite. Is it effectively corporate in nature? Again, I'm trying to wrap up here. This is a conclusion. Does it model the Psalms in regards to being prayer, praise, or proclamation? Again, that's a broad heading, but generally speaking. And so, my closing point is, last week I said, if we approach music with intentionality, gospel pattern, right? And then many of the controversial issues, the worship wars, would probably be settled. Well, that's the same thing I'm going to say today as well. How would our view of worship music change if we approached it with this threefold purpose in mind? How would it change? Again, I'm arguing. If we approach it this way, and we can agree on that, then a lot of the questions where people most often differ are probably going to be settled. All right, so next week, 
only on style. That's our main focus. How does style fit into all this? Are there biblical guidelines for style? Is style completely neutral? Doesn't matter. Or are there biblical guidelines? That's what we're going to talk about. We do have just a couple of minutes if you want to ask a question or make a comment. Jack. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Evaluate each, each hymn that we sing and where it fits in the service and what it's trying to communicate. And yeah, um, yeah, um, always reforming. Semper, semper reform, whatever the Latin is. <laughs> um, always be evaluating our songs and our hymns um, to see if maybe cultural, dangerous cultural um, implicit teachings have crept in. I think of the hymn like, um, when in the garden alone, um, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. I grew up singing that song, but it's a very it's a it's a very unorthodox song, and it's very gnostic, and um, that's what the Trinity Hymnal the editors have have done. They've gone through and oh, you know what this this was a popular traditional hymn, right? This is the traditional style, should be okay, but um, and they've removed it so. Gracie. Um, with all of this, are you specifically talking about corporate worship? Like in yes. Okay, so yep. aside from like, personal worship or... Yeah, personal worship, worship or singing outside of the corporate church context um, is, you have much more leeway, I believe. Um, and that is because when the church is gathered, you have officers, you have the sacraments, you have church discipline. You have a local church. And all that comes together. Uh, you know. But when you gather for worship at school, you don't have any of that. You, and so, yes, uh, in some sense, a lot of these principles still apply. But you have a lot more freedom. You especially have freedom in the, in the privacy of your own home um, to listen and to worship. However, you, you know, just like you can wear whatever you want in the privacy of your own home, but you wouldn't wear whatever you want, uh, you know, in church. There's different guidelines. There's, um, so I'm arguing for in the context of a local established church with, with officers and church government and sacraments. All right, let's close in prayer.